Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Youth and Policy Podcast. I'm your main host, Alex Smith, and I'm joined here today by Galen, a specialist in the field of hospice. Hospice is a type of healthcare that focuses on the palliation and care of terminally ill patients, pain and symptoms, and attending to their emotional and spiritual needs at the end of life. Hospice care prioritizes comfort and the quality of life by reducing pain and suffering. Hospice care can also provide an alternative to therapies focused on life-prolonging measures that may be arduous, likely to cause more symptoms, or not aligned with the personal patient's goals. Thank you for joining me today, Galen. Sure, thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off with just for um, a lot of the listeners here that are not exactly familiar with hospice, I know I gave a, a very short overview of it. Um, could you just go a little bit more in depth on um, the duties and procedures surrounding hospice? Sure. Um, primarily with hospice, um, again, we are, our patients are primarily at the end of life. Um, they, when they enter into hospice, they're certified by a physician with a um, prognosis of six months or less, meaning we expect that they, if they were to live out the natural course of their disease process, that they would pass within six months. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody does. In fact, oftentimes, m most often they don't, they live longer than that. Um, and, but we still, um, we're looking at how are we going to manage them in the goals that they have for the end of their life. Um, it could be something that's very clinical in nature, like managing their pain or that they have shortness of breath. Um, if they have agitation, those kinds of physical symptoms. Um, it could be also helping them achieve um, a life goal or a life event. It may be that they want to stay here with us until a birth of a child is coming or a wedding or graduation, that kind of thing. And so um, we focus our treatment on the person as a whole and how to give them a respectful death and dying process at the end of life. Right. And um, so now that we've, we've talked about a little bit about hospice, um, the listeners are a little bit more familiar with it. Um, one big question that I've seen asked a lot in regards to end of life care um, and things like that, and especially with what's going on with the pandemic is, are there ever times where um, hospice workers disagree or um, are uh, at odds with one another on what the exact cause of death was? Um, are, are you, could, are you referencing something in particular? You Not something in particular, more just say a patient passes and one doctor thinks, okay, maybe it was a, f a severe lung issue or a heart issue. Oh, okay. And another doctor says, no, it was a disease like COVID. Um, are okay. there ever times where they disagree? Sure. Um, I mean, usually when we're talking about the end of life diagnoses and that kind of thing, um, it, it's not so much that they disagree on what the cause of the death is. Um, I often see um, clinicians disagree on um, how long they think somebody has left to live and whether or not they're appropriate for hospice at, you know, it, you know, do they have six months or less, you know, are, are they ready for it mentally, emotionally, physically, or is it, is it appropriate? And there's much um, discussion and disagreement uh, among healthcare professionals as far as when that happens, as far as what actually um, 
you know, leads to the death, usually once they've been on hospice, there's pretty strong agreement among the hospice professionals what the disease process is that this patient is suffering from. Um, and yes, the, the onset of COVID has kind of changed things up a little bit, um, but, um, you know, we, we definitely can separate out who's passing because of COVID and who's not. And talking about COVID, and I'm sure um, it, things have gotten more difficult surrounding end-of-life care. Um, how, have the restrict, how is managing the restrictions surrounding COVID um, kind of affected the workplace and morale, or not morality? Um, uh, I can't think of the word now. Um, the ability to continue working. Um, the, the drive, you know, especially with there's a lot of hospice, hospitals that say, you know, not only during um, childbirth can only one person be in the room per day, but with COVID, COVID, somebody's dying, you're limited on the amount of people who can come see them. Um, and I'm sure that's gotten a lot more difficult. Is, has that really affected the, the whole situation? It has had a tremendous effect on what we do and our ability to do it. Um, the federal agencies that we answer to um, oversee us, they oversee um, like skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes. Um, a lot of, probably about half of our patients live in some sort of facility, either a nursing home, an assisted living facility or a board and care. Um, and all of those facilities have really shut down our ability to go visit. Um, even though the government or the federal agencies say that patients have a right to have hospice care at the end of life, um, they're the same agencies that are also um, allowing the facilities to say, no, you can't come in. And so we're, it's, it's challenging. We have an, what we call an inter interdisciplinary team meaning it's not just a nurse and a doctor. We have a social worker, we have a chaplain, we have volunteers, um, we have home health aides. We have a whole team of people that are usually engaged with the patients and their families towards the end of life. And um, because of COVID, we're not allowed to come in. Instead of going in and seeing a patient um, you know, three days a week, we might be able to get to see them one day every two weeks. And so you can just imagine what kind of ramifications that has. Um, it's also affected us with the home families. A lot of home patients don't want us to come to the house um, and we have a hard time getting in. Um, it's also affected us um, from an internal agency standpoint with staffing. We've had, um, we have to deal with um, staff and their fears of contracting COVID, um, getting it from a patient or from a patient family member. Um, and you have, <clears throat> you also have staff that have had family members that have been affected by COVID where they've had to um, take leaves from work or quit their job to take care of their loved ones at home that are sick. So it's affected us from a, a management standpoint as well. Um, it's affected us from a, from a cost effectiveness standpoint. The amount of um, supplies that we need now because of COVID um, is just through the roof as far as um, all the PPE supplies, the masks, the, the face shields, the gowns, gloves, that kind of thing. 
Um, and I think for us as a nonprofit hospice agency, one of the things that it has affected us um, the most is with our volunteers. We depend heavily on our volunteers um, and our volunteer events and that kind of thing. And all of that has come to a screaming halt because of COVID. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, being kind of at a little bit at strife with the government, just in the case of, you know, you mm -hmm. want people to be comfortable when they die and the government's putting a big restriction on that. Um, are there, has there ever been a big, I should, I should say, incident or something like that where somebody pushes through the hospital's security or restrictions just to see their loved one die um, or something like that? Or maybe they push through and then they have to deal with repercussions of being fined or going to jail because they wanted to be with their loved one when they were dying? Um, I haven't had that experience and I haven't heard of any of those experiences. Um, I have, but I know the hospitals have been very strict with their security. Um, they've really increased their security um, forces to keep people, you know, keep people that aren't sick out of the hospital. Um, sometimes you'll run into somebody that is um, very persistent and wants to wait out in front of the hospital and hopes that they get let in, but they, they have really been very strict with the visitation policies. So, um, and um, I'm not aware of anybody, you know, trying to, to force themselves in, um, you know, they kind of have to know where they're going also. <laughs> and usually they don't know that until they get in, so. Right, yeah. Um, I'm sure that definitely helps. Yeah, the fact that they don't know exactly where they need to go. But yeah. um, I, I saw that one big question, it just in the research and of writing the script and that sort of thing for this um, interview. One big thing that, that people were wondering with hospice workers was, how do you talk to a family member of an individual who is in obvious pain and is kind of nearing that, um, not necessarily super close to the end of life, but just in general, but the entire family, but the family member or the entire family is afraid to administer pain medication because they're afraid that it'll hasten death or harm them more in the long run. How do you deal with that? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, the patients I've encountered many, many times, both in the hospital setting and in the hospice setting um, where patient or family members feel that if we give the patient or their loved one pain medication, that it's um, kind of a light switch that, you know, you can just flick on and off. And if you give them the medication, they're going to pass immediately. And um, anytime you have end of life discussions with families, and it could be when somebody is what we call imminent, meaning one to two days left, you know, it could be that they could have weeks, it could be that they have months or even years left. Anytime you have an end of life discussion, um, they can be very difficult to have with patients and with families, usually harder with families than with patients, they're usually easier to talk to. Um, I, found, I have found that being very direct um, throughout the conversation is your best friend. Uh, you, you need to be able to say the hard words. You need to be able to say dying and death and those kinds of things, because if you talk in euphemisms, 
um, they don't understand. Whether or not there's somebody that's very capable of understanding because of the subject matter, they don't, they have a hard time understanding. Um, and so in situations like that, I will take the time to walk through the process of what the pain medication is going to do for the patient, that it's going to give them comfort, that it's, you know, we're, we're giving small doses that, you know, and that we start with like a, what we would call like, and then to reassure them that, that the medication is not going to hasten their death. Very, um, it would have to be a really extreme situation for that to happen. Um, the, there are parameters in place and procedures in place on how to initiate these medications. And it's something where you continually assess these patients once we start these medications. And, um, and nowadays you have Narcan that if, because the most common medication we administer would be morphine. And so we have Narcan that can re immediately reverse any effects of morphine if something is happening. And so usually if you go through and, and really talk through what you would want, what the family would want for the patient, do they want them to be hurting or short of breath, that kind of thing, they will come around to actually medicating and being agreeable with medication. Right. And obviously, since this is a, I, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, um, and that's my bad. If there's any questions at any point um, that you don't feel comfortable answering or you don't think you can, you can give an open answer to because of your position or whatever, you can say, you know, I can't answer that or I don't feel comfortable. Oh, okay. answering that. Um, that's, and I say that, not, you know, not only for you, I say that to everybody in, mm -hmm. in every episode I've recorded. Um, this isn't live. I can edit it. Um, so, you know, if, if it gets too hard to answer a question or something like that, um, then feel free. You know? Sure. Um, so one question we, we had was, um, some of us personally at the company, uh, was we were seeing, there was that big article that came out a few years ago on assisted suicide. Um, mm -hmm. It was in Switzerland. There was that old man who took assisted suicide and the government helped him pass. Um, obviously I believe this is, uh, assisted suicide is illegal in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, do you ever have people, patients in hospice that want that assisted suicide that, um, that like beg you for it? Um, and have you ever had any cases of people who, or, or employees who have done that and have been like, you know, they were in pain, we're trying to help. And that's what we ended up doing. Um, the assisted suicide, or um, we call it here in California, the end of life option act um, is, um, it, it is allowed in the state. Um, it is heavily, heavily regulated. It is not something where you can get a diagnosis one day, make a decision that this is what you want to do the next day. And um, the, you know, on day three, you're set to take your medication and, and you know, go wherever you're going to go. Um, it's, it takes, once you decide that that's something that you want, and there's only certain diagnoses, certain illnesses that you can use to qualify you to be a participant in the End of Life Option Act, um, you have to be certified by a doctor and then you have to be um, certified by a psychiatrist. 
which they are doctors also, but you have to have a, a like your internal medicine doctor and then a psychiatrist. And then three weeks after those assessments are done, you have to be reassessed by another physician. Um, so you have to go through all these hoops, so to speak, to even qualify. Um, once all of that happens, then you have to coordinate um, a date and um, the medication and that kind of thing. And there are certain qualifications. Um, the patient has to be able to take the medication themselves. So, and we have had several patients that have, um, you know, used their right to this act um, that I've worked with. And um, sometimes I've had it where they were so sick that um, they died on their own prior to being able to end their own life. Um, because the, the process at this point in time is still pretty cumbersome. Um, but once everything is, is done, um, as a nurse, as a hospice nurse, we can be present at the location where they are doing this, whether it's in their own home, several people that I know have chosen to do it at a hotel, um, because they don't want their, their family doesn't want them to die at home or they don't want to die at the home or for whatever reason, um, where you can be like in the home, but you have to be in a different room. You can't be in the room with them when they're taking the medication and they have to be able to take the medication on their own, but we can still stay at the residence to be supportive to the family and be with the patient, um, after they've taken their medication. So I hope that answers that question. Yeah, definitely. It definitely does. Assisted suicide is a very um, heavy topic, obviously. And it was it was big back when the guy in Switzerland did it, the older man. Um, one thing that we wonder, maybe to help lighten up the mood a little bit huh? more, um, is working in hospice um, and having employees in hospice, uh, what are some things you can recommend um, to people who are dealing with heavy, in, not industries, but um, careers like this, mm -hmm. what are some things you can recommend to help stay positive, keep going, you know, have a good mindset about things? What are some things you can recommend? Um, you have to take care of yourself first, however it may be. Um, you have to allow yourself to have recuperation and regeneration time. Um, it, whether it's you know, reading a book or walking your dogs or um, getting manicures or whatever it may be um, to, to allow that time for yourself. Um, and quite often that is time that is by yourself. So <laughs> um, I have about a 45 minute drive home. And, you know, so one of my things, I'm an 80s child. So you know, the 80s tunes go on and I have my own personal rock concert in my car every day on the way home. <laughs> so, you know, that's very regenerative for me. Um, so you need to take time off. You need to take breaks um, and you need to not take everything so seriously in life. You know, um, the death and dying process is going to happen for all of us at some point in time. So, you know, you need to be able to laugh at things that are funny. Um, you know, 
sometimes the color of your humor might be a little bit off and and that's okay <laughs> so um and it's you also have to be know that it's okay to cry um there are there's always going to be a patient that hits you hard and um it could be you know quite oftentimes it's a patient that reminds you of somebody that was in your family that was a loved one that passed away um quite often it could be a pediatric patient because it's just really difficult to have those cases um but it's 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 okay to cry it's it's okay to let the family see you cry as long as they're not having to console you then it's okay um we recommend you know if if you've developed a really close relationship with the family to go to the funeral um or well pre-covid you could go to the funeral or go to whatever kind of gathering they were having um we also where i work we have an, an annual um memorial service to give to give all the employees an opportunity to say goodbye to all of our patients that we've had for the last year so certain things like that are really um, restorative and recuperative for us. And um, so that's that's good, definitely. Um, it's it's good to keep a healthy mindset about things. Yeah. And obviously, this isn't a episode about you know mental health or things like that. That's a separate topic entirely, um, or it's for a separate episode. But um, it's it's definitely good, you know listen to 80s music in your car or <laughs> take the dogs out for a walk like you said and then develop close connections you know and accept um what you have to deal with yeah you know i, th I think um refusing to accept the reality of the situation a lot of times can make things worse mm -hmm. for sure um but pulling back to a little bit more i know we talked about a few years ago the man who had assisted suicide um mm -hmm. and there's another situation this was a lot smaller, it wasn't as well known, um, but it's one of the articles that helped inspire this episode. And it was the situation where about six or seven years ago, um, this man was on hospice for about four months. Um, I think it was just over four months. Uh, and then they they went in and they basically told him um, they're going to leave, he was going to have to leave and they'd have to find other arrangements for him um, because he was, I think they said, too stale. I don't know if that's a term, a word that is used. Too um, stable. Too stable. That's the word. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was a typo in the article because <laughs> I'm looking. I'm referencing the article, um, but it says a week after uh, he was pulled off hospice, he he passed away. Yeah. Um, it, has that ever kind of situation happened um, in your field? So um, I'm sure it has. Um, we when somebody comes on to hospice service, like I said, we have a, a physician that has to certify them um, with a prognosis of six months or less. That certification is good for 90 days. At the end of 90 days, the physician has to reevaluate that patient and certify them for another 90 days. And at that point, we have to do the same process, but only, but every 60 days. So for, I, I would say to have somebody come on to service and after four weeks or a month or that kind of thing for them to say he's too stable to come off, um, that is definitely out of the norm. Um, 
but we do have to be able to justify to the federal agencies that fund us that the patients are appropriate for the care that we're providing. So we do have times where patients will graduate from hospice care because they've had what they what we call an extended prognosis, meaning they're going to live a lot longer, or they've decided to seek curative treatment, um, that kind of thing. So it does happen, and it it does happen where um, they can have a change of condition right after they get decertified and then pass quickly. And so we are constantly juggling that um, cloudy crystal ball, trying to figure out you know, where, where this patient is on, on their travel and when is it right to keep them on service? Um, when is it right to have them go off? Quite often we have them that will go off service and a week, two weeks, a month later, they're coming back on service. Um, and sometimes I've had it happen where we were all set to what we call decertify somebody. And like the day that we're gonna do it, they have a change of condition and so we don't go through with it and they pass quickly. So, um, so it is possible that it could happen. Um, but um, if I would say, I would recommend to somebody in that situation, um, if one hospice agency were to decertify you is I would seek out another hospice agency and see if they would um, be willing to certify you and start services because quite often that happens as well. Well, um, only one more question. Okay. Uh, and ending on a, on a little bit of a, of a high note um, here. Do you have any, if you had to pick one good story or one good memory from working in hospice that you'd like to share, um, what would you pick? Oh, wow. Hmm. Um, I can, this actually goes back uh quite a long time ago to when I was in nursing school. Um, I had, I was able to spend some time um, at the VA in Palo Alto. Um, they have what we call an inpatient hospice unit where people are in the hospital getting their hospice services because their, um, their needs are so great. They're having, you know, really out of control pain or out of control short shortness of breath or, or whatnot. And um, we had a patient that, uh, was having difficulties passing was kind of lingering and hanging on and just not really ready to go and um basically some of the family he had a big family and some of the family had um like trips planned and things that they were doing and um and we had told them that to, to do what it is that you're planning, your loved one that's here, your dad, your uncle, your grandpa, or whatever, he would want you to still do the things that you had planned. He's not going to want you sitting around here staring at him, you know, waiting for him to pass. And so um, finally, after, you know, he was, he was on the unit for, for about three weeks. Um, and he, all of the family came together just by coincidence one night. It was, um, it was a Friday night. And, um, and while they were all there, he passed, he passed peacefully. Um, 
he, even though all of the family had been in and out over, over the course of the three weeks, um, it just, it just so happened that, you know, they kind of all came together on this one night by, by coincidence. And, um, and I think that's what he needed in order to let go. And so he was able to do so. And he, he wasn't hurting. He wasn't short of breath. He wasn't agitated. He, it was peaceful. It was, you know, if you, if you have to be awake and go, that was a great way to go. And so um, that's something that I would hope for anybody. That's, that's a very nice story. Definitely. Um, well, I appreciate your time here. Thank you for Thank joining you. me uh, today. Um, yeah. Anytime. If you ever have any other questions, please feel free to call me. <laughs> good thing. All right. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support us, you can do so by checking out our Instagram pages at YIP Institute and at Watch Verbum. You can also look at our website at www.yipinstitute.com. Make sure to follow our page as we upload multiple videos weekly. Have a good day.